continue our study here through the book of Ezra. Lord willing, time willing, we've got just a couple little quick points to finish up in Ezra chapter 5. We're going to hopefully do Ezra chapter 6 and actually get into Ezra chapter 7. It's a kind of a quick book here. It's only 10 chapters. Now, please remember, and you've heard me make these points numerous times before as we've been through our study in Ezra. This book is written like almost a business-type letter. There's letters to and from kings and kingdoms, etc. And as you read through that, you're getting all the detail. And you may say, why is this detail important? This detail is important because this is an amazing season that's happening with the Jews. As you've heard me say over the last few weeks, they had spent 70 years in captivity. They had lost their nation. Assyria took over the ten northern tribes. Babylon took over the two southern tribes. They did not have a temple. They did not have a capital. They did not have a land. They had nothing. Then by God's providence, he brought them back. And these kings that sent them back should not have done it. And when I say they should not have done that, that did not gain anything for them. It had to be of the Lord. And it was a fulfilled prophecy right there that after 70 years of captivity, they came back. It reminds me a lot when Israel became a nation. And we're coming up to, I believe, what is this? Coming up to the uh, close to the 59th year, right? Since Israel's been a nation. 1948 there. So it's kind of a, an amazing, excuse me, almost the 69th year since Israel's been a nation. So fulfilled prophecy right there in front of us again. So what you see here, are they coming back, build the temple, build the walls, God's hand upon them, and they have all these names in there to show you these are real people, real events that happen, real history, real prophecy being fulfilled in front of you. So, last week we left off with this. The Jews were being attacked, if you will, by saying, are you even allowed to do this? Take a look at verse 3 of chapter 5. At the same time, Titania, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shezdar Bosnia, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Why are you guys allowed to do this? Do you guys have permission to do this? But look at what happens in verse 5. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease, so a report could go to Darius, that was the king. Then a letter answer was returned to continue this matter. So basically, they don't have the answer, they're just going to keep working. I want to let you guys know, that's a little tiny spiritual point there, just to put in the back of your head. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 9. He goes, we must work while it is day, because the night is coming where we can't. He's talking spiritually speaking. Basically, what he's saying is this. Keep moving forward. Keep working. Because there's going to come a time when you can't. So you work when you can. Now, that has lots of applications spiritually. I tell people all the time about church. Hey, listen. Come to church when you can. Because there's going to be times you can't. Kids are going to get sick. Life's going to pop up. There's going to be work situations. So come the times you can. Because you know there's going to be times you can't. You may wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, my plan is to really spend the evening with the Lord. And I'm really going to get into prayer and I'm going to really give my kids over to the Lord, my marriage, etc. You know what, maybe the time to do it is right now because you don't know what the evening is going to bring. These guys right here, people were against them trying to make them stop. Verse 5, but they kept working even though things were against them. There's also an application point to this. If you really want to do the Lord's will in your life, you're going to have opposition. You're going to consistently have opposition to that. You're going to have people mock you. You're going to have people put you down. You're going to have life pop up that tries to push you back. There's going to be that scourge of busyness that we like to say. There's always going to be a reason why not. What do you do? Verse 5, you keep moving forward. You keep working. So what happens is they write a letter to Darius the king, verse 7, and they basically say, 
do they have permission to do this? And there's an honesty in this letter. Take a look at verse 11. Thus they returned to us an answer. They said, basically, who are you? We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Sirius, king of Babylon, King Cyrus, excuse me, Cyrus issued a decree to build this house to God. So they said, we have permission from King Cyrus to do this years ago. So now this is, this is what I'm saying. Look at the business aspect of this. Verse 17. Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. So basically, we got these people building this temple. We don't know if we have the proper permission to do that. Can you go back and check and see if they have the okay? And what do we find out that happens? Chapter 6, verse 1. The king is now Darius. Time has passed. Did Cyrus really say they could? Verse 1. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Achimithia, and the palace that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. Now, that's a lot of words. And you may say, what am I supposed to get out of that? Medea, verse 2, is 300 miles away. 300 miles away. They search, they search diligently, and they found the letter that says that they're allowed to do that. Now, a couple quick points with this. Number one, don't ever doubt the Lord. Okay? He'll take care of it. He truly will. The letter's 300 miles away. They never should have found it. It's hidden away in the rusty old uh, dirty archives. They found it because God is good. And that's what the Lord does. I have really learned in my walk with the Lord, when it really feels like everything is just surrounding me, it's a really a great opportunity to stop and say, Lord, what are you going to do? Because you're faithful. You're good. You promise good for me. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know you're going to take care of it. And the Jews had just this great faith in the Lord that they had the permission to do this. The letter was found. And not only found, not only found, look at what they get out of this. Now remember, this is Darius is now the king. This is years later. He's going back and looking on the records to see what Cyrus said that they're allowed to do. Look what they're allowed to do. Verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, the temple. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundations of it firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. We talked about this in chapter 1. A secular king gave them permission to go build the temple. That was prophesied 120 years earlier in the prophet Isaiah, that this man by name, Cyrus would do this. This is the beauty of prophecy. So he gave them permission to do this. And the temple is going to be pretty good size. 90 by 90. That's 60 cubits by 60 cubits. But not only do they have permission, verse 3, verse 4. Let the expenses also be paid from the king's treasury. They get permission in verse 3. It's paid for in verse 4. Look at verse 5. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. They get their items returned 
And then even jump ahead, look at verse 9. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. That's just what the Lord does. Yes, they have permission. Yes, we're going to pay for it. Yes, we're going to return all your items. And also, by the way, whatever else you need, just ask and you can have it. That's what it shows to be walking in God's blessings. It's an amazing thing. It reminds me also of the verse in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, God promises. It's kind of a strange verse. He goes, I will restore to you the years that the locusts took. What was happening in the book of Joel, Joel was prophesying and there was these, this plague of locusts that were destroying everything. And Joel basically said, listen, everything's been destroyed. The locusts are also a spiritual picture of the nation being destroyed. He goes, but God's going to restore to you everything. Do you think in the wildest dreams of these captives when they were in Babylon for the last 70 years, do you think they would ever think that we'd get to go back with the king's permission to build a temple? Not only that, they're going to pay for it. Not only that, return all the items. And not only that, whatever else you need, you can have. That's what the Lord does. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that you say or think. So what does this mean practically? Right now, moms, dads, you're looking at your kids and you think they're a spiritual wreck. God is able to do this and restore it. You're looking at a marriage. God can restore it. You're looking at a walk that's become a crawl. God can restore that. You're looking at an emptiness in life. God can restore it. This is what the Lord does. And if he did this for the nation of Israel, if he did this for them and the temple, he can still do this for us today. And we walk in faith and we trust. And even though there's opposition against us, we say, Lord, I keep moving forward in you because you're going to work out all the details. So any quick questions, comments about that? The temple, the permission they have, all the blessings they get out of it, and God's hand just upon it. Right. Correct. So this thing here, um, Cyrus or Darius, whoever the, the king, made, gave them permission. Yep. And therefore, by the laws of Medes and Persians, it couldn't be changed. They had to do it. They had to do it. And that's why they were so diligent to put the search into it, because once again, they found it 300 miles away. They went back through all the records. That's how much of a society this was of rules. That's a good point, too, about Daniel with the lion's den. This is that they lived in. Yes, it was a dictatorship. Yes, it was this awful kingdom, but they also followed the rules, and these rules came back to bless the Jews here. It's an amazing thing. Lynette. Yeah, we have the slide of that. I don't know if we still... That's, we don't have that one. We're up for tonight. But from the permission that they got, from the time the temple started, the temple was done. It was about 18 years. So if you jump here, so basically the temple's getting done in chapter 6. It was foundation was laid back in chapter 3. And then there was an 18-year break in there where they were you know, basically picked on, attacked, etc. The prophets showed up, Haggai and Zechariah, and that's where we left off in chapter 5 with. If you take a look in verse 1 of chapter 5, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, they showed up and they got the work going again. And that's where we picked up in chapter 5. So it took them about 18 years from laying the foundation to get the temple done. Anybody else have anything here? Oh, Megan.
No, this temple right here would become what is known as Herod's temple. So you have your, you have your tabernacle that you had with Moses. After the tabernacle, you had Solomon's temple that was built. That one was utterly destroyed by Babylon. This one is rebuilt, and this one right here becomes Herod's temple. This would be the temple that Jesus went to. Now, there's obviously a lot of remodel that happened. This temple was then destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and so there is no temple right now, but there is plans to rebuild the temple. So the temple has been destroyed, but there's plans to be rebuilding it right now. And so since this is Wednesday night, we get to have fun. Now, they can't build it right now because the Muslims have the Dome of the Rock, which is right there where they think that the temple could actually be. So if you go look over in Israel, there's the Dome of the Rock, which the Jews want to build the temple right beside the Dome of the Rock or want to build it right there, and they can't, and that's why there's such a huge deal. So that's why when the temple is going to be rebuilt during the reign of the Antichrist, it is such an amazing thing because something happens where the Muslims and the Jews come to some type of an agreement to allow this to happen. Because that Dome of the Rock is a very holy site in the Muslim religion, and the Jews want their temple back. Now, how is that going to be worked out? There's all these different ideas. No one knows for sure. Some people believe that part of what the Antichrist is going to do is bring some type of peace where they can have their temple in the Dome of the Rock. Some people believe that the actual temple should not be right there where the Dome of the Rock is. It should be moved a little bit farther away. But somehow, some way, it's going to happen that the Muslims and the Jews come to some type of agreement where the temple can be rebuilt. And that's the temple that's going to be around during the Tribulation and during the time of the antichrist you can get online right now and find all this out this is not conspiracy theory this is fact they are trying to train up priests they are trying they got the garbs already made they're making the temple tools that they need it's all right there there's a push for this there's a group of jews over in israel that want the temple rebuilt they want this and you see prophecy being fulfilled right in front of you This is the thing about prophecy. If we know that the Antichrist is going to go into the temple during the tribulation and defile it, that means there has to be a temple rebuilt. Well, if there has to be a temple rebuilt, and I'm seeing right now them trying to rebuild the temple, what am I seeing right in front of me? Prophecy being fulfilled. It's an amazing, amazing thing right now. Always keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Always keep your eyes on Israel, and you see all the end times come into place. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. So... But it's important to understand this type of stuff and understand what's going to go on here. So this temple was the temple that Jesus would have went to. was destroyed in 70 AD. There's no temple now. It will be rebuilt. And then there's even another temple coming. There's a temple that Ezekiel prophesied about called the Millennium Temple. And during the Millennial Reign of Christ, there'll be another temple built. Where how's this for a fun fact? There'll be sacrifices again. It's kind of an interesting thing when you study out the book of Ezekiel. So now that we kind of got off on that tangent, any other questions, comments about anything here before we go on? Okay. So with that being said, they now have permission. It is now paid for. The items are returned. Whatever else you need, it is here. Verse 13, chapter 6. Then Tataniah, the governor of the region beyond the river, Shinnathur, Banzi, and their companions diligently did according to what the king Darius had sent. Hey, the king said they're supposed to build it. The king said they're supposed to build it. Verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. And they built 
and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. These are the different kings that helped give permission, materials, etc. Cyrus is the one that originally said, go do it. That's who we started out the book with. Darius, we're talking about now. Artaxerxes would have been the king during the time of Nehemiah that sent Nehemiah out. God used these kings. Remember what it says in the Bible, that God will even make his enemies a what? A footstool. What's a footstool? Something you grab to use. God says, hey, kings, you think you're in power? You're not. You're my footstool. I want to use you to rebuild the temple. I'm going to use you to rebuild the temple. Now, let's talk about what these prophets said. Uh, Dustin, can you put up that slide? I just want to remind you real quick of what Haggai and Zechariah said. Just a couple quick verses, and these are some of the passages that we've talked about over the last couple weeks. Just, Just three verses right here. Remember what Zechariah and Haggai said. These are the prophets that God raised up during that 18 years where nothing was happening to say, get out there and do it. Haggai was a drill sergeant. He's the one in his two-chapter little book said, listen, you're putting all your time and energy into your house. Well, my house sits desolate. No. Zechariah was more encouraging. He was more, look at the big picture, everybody. So just a couple quick reminders. Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We quote that verse all the time. The context of that verse is this. It looks like the temple can't be built, Zerubbabel. I get that. But it's going to be built by my spirit. I'm working in people. The next one, Zechariah 4.10. For who has despised the day of the small things? We talked about this. This is where they started rebuilding the temple. And if you remember correctly, the older generation started weeping. Not because they were happy, because they were sad. They remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And they saw this tiny little temple. And they started weeping. And Zechariah says, guys, quit crying. Don't despise the small things. And we talked about that. We talked about how in our spiritual life... Don't despise the small things. That time of prayer, that time of worship, that time that you have in ministry in the Lord that you may say, you know, what's really getting out of this? A lot. More than you can ever know. There's nothing small in the kingdom of God. And then Haggai said this, Haggai 2.9, The glory of this latter temple, the temple we're talking about now, shall be greater than the former, Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Remember that verse. Haggai is saying, this temple... We have more glory than Solomon's temple. Why? Because this temple is the temple that the Messiah will come to. But remember Haggai 2.9. Dustin, you can actually leave those up there because we're going to come back to that verse in a second. So the prophets encourage them. Real quick. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. And you can kind of go back and study this on your own. 1 Corinthians 14.3. 1 Corinthians 14.3. Prophecy. Prophecy is supposed to do three things. Build you up, encourage you, and strengthen you. That's what prophecy is supposed to do. It's not supposed to tear you down. It's not supposed to demoralize you. It's supposed to build you up, encourage you, and strengthen you, according to 1 Corinthians 14.3. And that's exactly what Zechariah and Haggai did. Guys, we can do this. Not through our power, but through the Lord. And that's what you want to see in the body of Christ. You want to see that encouragement, that building, and that strengthening. As I've mentioned to you before over the last few years, just been hearing so many different teachings, just these phrases, you know, equip the sheep, don't whip the sheep. You can't bully somebody into a deeper walk with the Lord. They have to want it. And you just encourage them to want to go deeper. So the temple was finished, verse 15. 
Temple's finished. Then verse 16. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all the Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. If you're doing quick math right there, that's 712 animals. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. You may look at verses 17 and 18 and you say, okay, why the detail right there? Why the detail? Remember when we did uh, Ezra chapter 1? Remember the 21 knives? God likes details. God likes details. And so what happens here is the Lord looks at every little single detail and it shows that it's fact. It shows that it's true. It shows that it really Happened. They even know how many animals were sacrificed. And they had the priests and the Levites set back up. Now, this is also fun to dig a little deeper. 712 animals died in the dedication of this temple. That's a lot of animals. Now, when they dedicated Solomon's temple years before, 142,000 animals were killed. Now, compare that. 142, there's 142,000. They had so many animals being sacrificed that if you go back and read about it in 1 Kings, they they have to change the system how they're doing it. So 142,000 versus 700, what was it, 721? 712, excuse me, 712. Now, guys, you got to remember this in life. You hear us say this out here at church all the time. It's never about numbers. Never about numbers. If it was about numbers, Christianity, especially during the time of Jesus, was an absolute, utter failure. Because when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, even his own disciples didn't know whether they should believe it or not. It's never about numbers. And this is something we have to completely, utterly let go of. So fine, the church is full. That doesn't mean it's going right. Fine, the church isn't full. That doesn't mean it's not going right. Because what did we just read right here? 142,000 verses 712. If I just came up to you and described you Solomon's temple, the beauty of it, the gold and everything, and told you at the dedication that went on and on and on for days, there's 142,000 animal sacrifice. And now I tell you about this temple that took almost 20 years to build. People were weeping because it wasn't really that attractive. And only 712 animals died. Which one's the better temple? Well, according to God, Haggai 2.9, this one is. Because God's not concerned about numbers. Think of when Jesus, think of all those famous verses you know about Jesus. John three sixteen, you know, for God so loved the world. You know, John 4, about living water, etc. Do you realize Jesus quoted those verses, I should say quoted, Jesus spoke those things in a private one-on-one conversation with somebody. Some of the most famous passages we quote from Jesus was him talking to one person. Because it's not about numbers. Please remember that. When the church is full, it's not about numbers. When the church isn't full, it's not about numbers. Whoever shows up, shows up. You love them, you pray for them, you encourage them, and that is all that matters. And this temple right here with their puny little 712 animal sacrifice, ah, God says this is the temple that is going to have glory. Because this is the temple where the Messiah is going to be. All right, any quick questions here about anything with the temple and the sacrifices of the animals and the dedication? Okay, now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Take a look at verse 19. 
And descendants of the captivity kept Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Temple's back up and running. We can do sacrifices. We can have Passover. Verse 20, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. See, look at what this book is doing. It reads like a business report, but this is important. We're following the rules. So generations later, know that this temple was done properly and in order according to the Lord. Everybody was ritually clean. Verse 20, they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Then in verse 22, they're keeping the feast of unleavened bread. They're having joy, days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands and the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Look at that joy. Now, I want to focus on verse 21. Those who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations, from the uncleanliness of the nation. Can you go with me real quick to 2 Corinthians, please? 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is not a real fun point. Separating ourselves. You hear me say this a lot. Some, somehow, some way as Christians, we've gotten this way now. We dress like the world, we talk like the world, we act like the world, so you can't even tell us apart. If you really look at it, the Lord says there's a difference in how we live and there's a difference in how we act. Our marriages should be different. The way we deal with our kids should be different. The way we act in public should be different. The way we dress should be different. The way we speak, what entertains us, all this stuff should be different. Now, it's not a legalistic have to. It's, it's a fact of what the Lord has said. He goes, I have called you out. We just read back there that they have separated themselves from the filth of the nations. This theme continues in the New Testament. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, look at this verse. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Now be careful with that. I have seen people take this to an extreme. For you don't talk to non-believers. You don't talk to the unsaved. That's not what this is saying in any way whatsoever. It's saying your life should be separate. This is what the word saint means. Saint in the original Greek means separate. So when God calls you a saint, he's not calling you perfect. He's not calling you um, wonderful. He's saying that you've been separated from the world. What does this look like? I just want to share this quick for you. This is a, a paragraph. This is from John Corson. I thought this was great. He says about this verse, Does this mean we shouldn't have conversations with sinners? Of course not. Jesus was called a friend of sinners in Luke 7. But the important thing to note is that wherever Jesus went, he permanently and radically impacted sinners. Therefore, when you walk into places where worldly stuff is going on, if people start turning to God and repenting from their sin, go for it. If you're truly impacting the place you're in, excellent. But if the place is impacting you, causing your own spirit to sag, get out, pull away, back off immediately, come out. And that's what we've got to remember as believers. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. And we've got to remember that we're going to have interactions with people, but there is a calling where God says, you are separated from them. Now, 
you got to remember what that looks like. You are never going to be able to compete with the world. I remember at a pastor's conference years ago, they said this. They said, listen, church, quit trying to compete with the world. You can't. The world will find more ways to have fun, according to the world, than what you can ever offer. What you're offering is something completely different. You're offering salvation through Jesus Christ. You're offering the gospel. You're offering the good news. That's something the world can't compete with. But if you're trying to compete with them with fun and activities and entertainment, it will never, ever work. Because the world can just keep one-upping us. So what do we do? We just keep presenting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you present it in a manner that they can understand. You present it in a manner that reaches them on their level. There's no doubt about that. But ultimately, we are different. And we're supposed to be different. I think sometimes as believers, we try so hard to be like the world in the sense of, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm really cool like the world. I'm not. It's very freeing, actually, to realize that. The Bible says we're weird, we're strange, we're aliens. I like that. I'm different because I'm going to act different, talk different, live different, dress different. I am going to be different. And sometimes that's going to bring up some interesting conversations. And I can say, you know what? This is the life I live and this is why I live it. And the Lord has actually called us to come out from this. Just remember that world. Remember that world that wants to pull you in. We're the body of Christ. In fact, the Bible says we are just pilgrims passing through. That's all we're doing. And that I really do believe that sometimes the deeper you go with the Lord, the more you look at the world and you just say, I can't even relate to you. It's hard for me to even grasp you anymore. And the Lord says, you've been called out of it. You've been called out. But you're still finding ways to be able to minister to them on their level to be light and a witness in all they say and do. So this is an Old Testament theme you see in Ezra chapter 6. This is a New Testament theme that you see here in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 as well. Hey, I want to do just a couple verses of Ezra chapter 7 and then we're going to be done. I just want to introduce you to Ezra. This book has his name. And finally, seven chapters into the book, Ezra shows up. Verse 1. Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, stop right there. This is now about 60 years later. So if you're a note taker, between verse 22 of chapter 6 and verse 1 of chapter 7, about 60 years pass. The temple has been rebuilt. And now Ezra shows up to get the people in spiritual shape. You got your temple built. That happened with Zerubbabel. You got now they're spiritually getting in shape. That happens with Ezra. And then in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah shows up to build the walls. And this is over a span of decades here that this is going on. So Ezra shows up about 60 years later. His job, get the people spiritually restored. Please note the boringness of these next verses. Ezra, the son of Sarai, the son of Azria, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Atabah, the son of Amariah, the son of Azria, the son of Merath, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzzah, the son of Bukai, the son of Apshia, the son of Phinehas, the son of Elziar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, if you're looking there and you're saying, well, let me tell you a quick little hint. I have no idea how to pronounce those names. Just remember when you say names like that, say it with confidence. No one will ever question you. <laughs> What you see in verse 5, the son of Aaron, the priest, that's the only thing you need to know about. Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. That's what God's trying to tell you. So when you look at those verses and you're reading through this and you're saying, what does this matter? What matters is he's a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest. He can take his lineage exactly back to Aaron. 
Did you ever notice when they kept remembering Yeshua and Zerubbabel, they would always remember Zerubbabel, the son of this, the son of this, the son of this. Why? Because they're trying to show you, hey, he can actually trace his lineage back. So when Ezra shows up and he's going to start doing spiritual reforms, well, who is this guy? What gives him the right to show up and tell us how to live our life? He is a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, so he has the spiritual family lineage to have the power to do this. So when you see verses 2, 3, and 4, and 5, if you were a Jew living a couple thousand years ago, you would look at that and say, oh, now I get it. That's kind of important right here. That's very, very important. So he's a descendant of Aaron. What else do we know about this guy? Verse 6, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given Skilled scribe. He knows the word. So now that you got your temple built, now that you got your kingdom going here, I should say your town going, you need somebody to get you in shape. This is a guy that knows the law. And look what he has. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. This is what makes Ezra important. He's a descendant of the high priest, so he has the spiritual authority. He has the knowledge. He's a skilled scribe. Now, I just got two last points here about Ezra. First one, believers, know your Bible. Be a skilled scribe. I think of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2. Be diligent to present yourself an approved workman, rightly dividing the word of truth. Get into the word, stay in the word, read the word, study the word, understand the word, not just to build up your knowledge to say, look how smart I am, but that way when the world wants to throw something at you, you say, no, 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 I know what God's word says about this. Or when somebody in the church wants to come up and say, well, what about this? Well, wait a second. I know what the Bible says about this. God wants us to know his word. Does that take time, energy, and effort? You bet it does. You absolutely bet it does. But when you really start getting into the word and you really start seeing the power of it, even these funky verses and verses 1 through 4 about a genealogy, you stop and say, wow, Lord, I get it. I tell you, and I I share this with you guys a lot, if I find a really obscure passage in the Old Testament and I can't get anything out of it, those are sometimes my favorite. Lord, you put that in there for a reason. A reason. I love to see what it has to say. Don't go for the message that has a verse to start out with and a verse to end with and a whole lot about it and the man in the middle. Stick to the word, be in the word, grow in the word. That's what you see happening here in chapter, excuse me, verse 6. What else do you see about Ezra? Jump ahead to verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statues and ordinances in Israel. That sets our tone for the rest of the book. And guess what? It doesn't go real well for him. I know as a teacher of the word, people will come up and tell you, hey, what does the Bible have to say about this? Most of the time, they really don't want to know because they don't want to do it. Look at what Ezra is doing here in verse 10. He prepared his heart. He made a conscious decision to do what? Seek the law of the Lord. Next, he was also going to do it and then teach it. Oh, I love that verse. You really want to change the world for Christ. You really want to impact whatever ministry you're in. Take your name out. Put your, excuse me, take Ezra's name out, put your name in there. For James had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes. That's what we're supposed to do, people. Get in the word, study the word, do the word, and then teach the word. Oh, man, it's a wonderful thing, and I hope you're as blessed by that. I hope there's a passion in you to do that, to say, Lord, your word does not return void. It is powerful. It is active. 
Don't get sucked in to a lot of what you see in Christianity today, this little light-hearted Bible stuff. Get right into the Word. So that introduces us to who Ezra is. And we're going to pick this up in verse 11 next week. And you're going to see Ezra now starting to deal with some pretty tough, tough spiritual situations that are going on. And I tell you, it's rough. And some of his solutions are even a little rougher. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything in Ezra chapter 5, chapter 6, or the first part of chapter 7? Alrighty. Hey, let's pray and let you go. Can you guys stand with me, please? Lord, we don't want to despise the day of the small things. Lord, whatever you're working in our life, no matter how minute it looks, no matter how minute that little action is, you can expand that greatly for you. And we say thank you for that. Lord, it's not by our might or our power, but by your spirit. Help us to always remember that. You will restore to us the years the locusts took. If there's someone here tonight that is just in a pit, Lord, you're going to bring them back. And I say thank you for that. And Lord, I pray we could have a heart like Ezra, a skilled scribe, that's prepared their heart to seek your law, to do your law, to teach your law, and to live it, Lord. We love you, and we thank you, and praise you, and we thank you for your word being alive and active. We lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless. I'll be up here to pray if anybody's got anything they want to pray about.